You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from a special guest speaker. So this morning, um, I've been asked to spend a few moments with you talking and thinking about the topic of Jesus and women. And of course, we we know that we live in a time where there's all sorts of contention about what, around what it means to be a woman, whether the category even exists, um, women's rights in the West and all of that. And often the church is, is painted and is seen as being very down on women, being patriarchal and actually responsible for a lot of the sexism that, that people may experience. And so today... I think um, it's really important that we spend some time thinking about what did Jesus actually say, do, and model? What does he look like with regard to this question? And I've been thinking again and again how profoundly attractive the person of Jesus is, even when people might find institutional religion and even Christianity to be toxic or repulsive in our culture actually Jesus is just so beautiful and so attractive a former colleague of mine lives and works in the Middle East and he had been invited to speak in Baghdad um, for a week this is um, just a few years ago just um, after the kind of really bad conflict had come to an end but still there's quite a lot of of, um, dangerous stuff happening there and he felt that he should go and, and do this week. And they had a, a big marquee um, in downtown Baghdad. And they were just inviting people to come and hear about the person of Jesus. And you can imagine it was, it was pretty tense. And then one day um, during the week, uh, a person came and said, look, would you come and meet with this particular religious leader in Iraq? And my friend didn't know whether to do it. Maybe it was a trap. Would it be dangerous? So he called his wife and said, would it be okay if I go? What do you think? Should I go? He called some of us and people prayed and he thought, okay, I need to go. So he went to the meeting and this guy was the most famous sheikh on Iraqi TV. And they sat down together and they had about two and a half hours just talking about life, talking about um, their different kind of religious perspectives And uh, my friend said he felt the Holy Spirit say to him, be braver. And he thought, no thanks. (laughs) And he heard again, be braver. So he, he sort of mustered his courage. And he said to this very kind of erudite, learned gentleman, can I ask you a question? And the guy says, yeah, sure. So he says, can I ask you this? When you hear the name Jesus how does that name make you feel? And the guy stopped for a moment, and this is what he said. He said, I don't think there's an honestly sincere person in this world who doesn't hear the name Jesus, and he longs to make his soul's home in that name. My friend was really taken aback. He said, well, if you feel that way, what is preventing you from making your soul's home in the name of Jesus? And the guy said, nothing. That's why you're here. <laughs> and so together they, they prayed. That's just a few, not many years ago, less than five years ago. The name of Jesus is beautiful 
and powerful and attractive. And the person of Jesus is wonderful. The Bible says that when the Lord Jesus is lifted up, he will draw people to himself. But this question of Jesus and women is a question that, in a way, does the opposite. It makes people feel upset and perhaps angry. Legitimately, many people may have experienced patriarchy, sexism, toxic kind of institutional culture in the institutions that purport to carry the name of Jesus. And so as we begin to explore the question and think about Jesus and women, we're going to need to peel away perhaps some of those layers of experiences that we may have gone through at the hands of the church and to consider Jesus himself. How did Jesus interact with women? What did he say, do, and think around women? Well, of course, Jesus was Jewish. And in the Old Testament, right at the beginning of the Bible, we have this staggering statement in Genesis chapter 127, where there's a description of what it means to be human. And the Bible says God created human human beings in his image, male and female, he created them. In other words, it's together, male and female, that we bear and reflect the image of God. In, you know, an ancient Near Eastern culture where women were regarded as less and lower and, you know, not equal with men, that was a radical statement of equality right there at the beginning of the Bible, conferring dignity, not just on us as human beings, but on male and female. So um, we see that, and then we go on in the second creation account where we see Adam and Eve being specifically created, and there's this phrase about Eve being made out of Adam's rib, and she is described, the woman is described as Adam's helper, or helpmeet, if you read a really kind of old-fashioned translation of the Bible. Now, I don't know what your, the visual image that pops into your mind when you hear the word helper, that a woman was created to be a man's helper. The visual image that pops into my mind is a woman doing the washing up with her hand in the sink and the bubbles up to her elbows, right? It's not a positive image. It feels like an image of domestic servitude or, or domination, perhaps, or hierarchy. All of those thoughts might, might pop up when we read that word. But to, to understand that word in that way would be an error. The Hebrew word translated helper in our English Bibles is the word ezer. And that word ezer is used, other than to describe Eve in this one instance, it is used to describe God. God's relationship with us as human beings. God is humanity's ezer. And what does it mean in that context? Well, it comes from two root Hebrew words. One Hebrew word means to rescue, to save, or to deliver. And the other Hebrew word means to be strong. God is humanity's rescuer, saviour, deliverer, and God is strong. And that is the title that he uses to describe what it means to be a woman. You see, this is prophetic of what women's role is going to be in salvation history. 
there's going to be a prophetic call of deliverance and saviour. How? Scroll on a couple of, of, of a few verses and we see this description of how the fall of humanity happened in Genesis chapter 3. How did sin and disappointment and darkness and suffering come into this world? It came into this world as a consequence of our exercise of volition, of choice as human beings. And of course, Eve plays a prominent role in that. She makes a choice. She has the capacity and the autonomy to make a decision. That's how woman is regarded in the Bible, right? And then um, as, as humanity is plunged into the fall, as we bear the consequences of the negative decisions we've made, God speaks and prophesies. And what does he say to women? He says, your seed will crush the serpent's head. The first promise of redemption in the Bible is given to a woman, and it is actually about a woman. And it's prophesying that when God comes in human history as the Messiah, he's going to come as a man through a woman. It will be a woman's seed. So the Holy Spirit comes, as we know later, on Mary. This is all prophesied right at the beginning of the Bible. A woman is the recipient of the first redemptive promise of the Bible. The primary teaching text of the Old Testament describing you know, what it's like to be a woman who's a kind of female role model in biblical terms doesn't um, it, it doesn't conform with our stereotype of a sort of Christian, religious, disempowered, downtrodden woman. Proverbs 31 describes a woman who lacks nothing of value. This woman assesses and buys and sells property. This is in a patriarchal society where that was hard for women to do. This woman is entrepreneurial. This woman employs multiple people. This woman is commended for working hard. This woman provides financially for her employees and for her family. This woman plants a vineyard. That means she engages in kind of strategic planning. She does something that it is going to take a long time to yield a return. So she has the capacity to plan and implement her plans. This woman is a scholar and she's described as embracing the intellectual life. She provides for the poor. She engages in social justice. She commands the respect of influential people and she is loved by her family. This woman is creative. She's described kind of designing her home furnishings, including her lovely bed linen and nice fashion. This woman even has strong arms. She has no bingo wings. She's a powerful woman. This woman is able to laugh at the future rather than fearing it. She is a non-anxious presence. We heard about that earlier in the service. Not anxious, not living in fear. A powerful testimony to someone who has authority and is respected and she speaks wisely and she loves and fears the living God. That's the ideal woman of the Old Testament. No sort of weird sandals and frumpy clothes. While the main um, stories of the Old Testament may well have male heroic figures, central figures. That is not exclusively the case. Unlike other literature of the ancient Near East, 
The Bible tells stories, not just of women who are brokenhearted. It does tell stories of women's pain and brokenness, abuse and experience of violence. But it also centers the experience of female heroic figures, women like Deborah, who led a nation and also led her people out to war, actually. Women like Esther, who, who um, endured being trafficked and being put in a horrible man's harem and actually rose up in her generation to save her people from a genocide. Perhaps even more striking in the Old Testament is the feminine imagery used by the prophets. And, you know, if you're a, a follower of Jesus and you believe the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit, then authored of God, feminine imagery used to describe who our God is and what he's like. Isaiah chapter 42 describes God as being like a warrior who's come back victorious over darkness and God being like a woman who has labored and brought forth life into this world. Isaiah chapter 66 has this famous and beautiful phrase, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. Speaking of the living God, the creator of the cosmos, this beautiful and powerful image. So it is into that stream of thought that the person of Jesus Christ steps into history. Now, in the New Testament, we're given um, these descriptive accounts in the Gospels, the four Gospels, based on eyewitness testimony. And they speak about who Jesus is, what he said, what he was like, what he experienced. But they also capture for us the moment in history. And in John's Gospel, chapter 4, there's a fascinating encounter between Jesus and a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman. And they have quite a long, protracted theological conversation that covers, you know, where worship should happen, what worship of God actually is. It's quite an interesting conversation. But I want to focus in on verse 27, which says this of chapter 4 of John's Gospel. Just then, Jesus' disciples returned, and they were astonished to find him, insert the blank, what was Jesus doing? What were they the word in the Greek is really strong. They weren't just a bit mildly surprised in a sort of British way. You know, they were amazed in an American way, okay? They were astonished, full on. They find Jesus. What's he doing? Is he standing on his head? Is he raising someone from the dead? Is he, you know, casting out a demon? No. They were astonished, amazed, astounded to find him talking to a woman. Okay, so this throwaway line captures the cultural moment that Jesus is in. Jesus has entered into history where it is unthinkable and utterly astonishing that someone like him would even just have a conversation with a woman. That's the context. In that context, this is how Jesus of Nazareth behaves. Jesus has female disciples. In a culture where the idea of women traveling with a group of male disciples or having that title or status of disciple would have been totally questionable, 
Jesus has a number of women traveling in his close traveling circle. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, describes them. He says, the 12 were with him. So the male 12 disciples were kind of symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And also the women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their means, out of their own means. In other words, the New Testament tells us that women paid for everything, right? The disciples were supported financially by the female disciples who paid for it with their own, not their husband's money, their own money. Now contrast that, <laughs> contrast that with a contemporary um, Jewish thinker of the time called Ben Sirach, who talks about what it would be like for a woman to support a man. Bad temper, insolence and shame hold sway where the woman supports the man. That's the contemporary view. But here in the gospel, we see Jesus doesn't just welcome women as disciples. He doesn't just welcome women in our weakness, in our brokenness, and he certainly does that. He also welcomes and affirms women in their strengths, receiving their gifts, being willing to be dependent financially on women. It's, it's, there's nothing like this in contemporary literature. It is li literally, I mean, it's, it is pretty amazing. We see Jesus had female disciples. Then we see Jesus taught women. Now, that doesn't sound that important or interesting, but this really, really is amazing, I promise you. In Luke's Gospel, in chapter 10, we read a story of two sisters called Mary and Martha. If you've ever been to church, grown up in Sunday school, you've probably colored in a few pictures of them, you know, maybe even stuck cotton wool on pictures of them. We all know the story of Mary and Martha. You know, Martha was, do, was doing the housework and she was annoyed that her sister wasn't helping her. And, and, and so the story goes, you know, she, she wanted Mary to help. But actually, what the text says is that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And that was a well-known phrase in the ancient world to describe the close relationship between someone who is a professional teacher, actually in the Greco-Roman world, a Greek philosopher would have, like Socrates or whoever, would have people sitting at their feet and that's how you learn that's you did that instead of going to university right so it's a phrase that people in the know at the time or just everyone just knew so I don't know what the phrase was if you studied at university where I went to university um, you went there you turned up and people didn't say what are you studying they said what are you reading because it's Oxford you see and they're all very sort of up themselves and so within two weeks of being there, you never said, what are you studying anymore? You said, oh, what are you reading? That's just everyone knew, right? So in the ancient world, to sit at the feet of didn't mean, you know, bad seating position, you're by the smelly feet. It meant it denoted the nature of the relationship. It meant this person is seriously engaging with this leader. They are being raised up. They are being apprenticed. 
So when Mary says, when Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha says to Jesus, tell her to come and help me. You know, I'm doing all the work here. She's not primarily annoyed that she needs help with the washing up. It's all a bit overwhelming on the domestic front. She is objecting to a woman assuming a male role. She's objecting to Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And what does Jesus say to her? Jesus says what Mary has chosen is far better. And it shall not be taken from her. That is a powerful statement by the Son of God on what it means to be a woman who follows Jesus. Jesus invited women to be disciples and he had women sitting at his feet like Mary. Jesus also spoke and taught about women in an affirming way. You know, you can kind of pick up people's prejudices in the incidental way they speak. Often people can hide their sexism or racism or whatever, you know, in direct speech, but you might notice it in their behavior or in their jokes or just in the way, incidentally, they interact. That's often how you pick it up, isn't it? And what we see with Jesus is that even in, in the incidentals, in the way he spoke about women, in the way that he engaged with the life experience of women in his teaching, he was amazing. So often his parables came in pairs. And they, took, they, took, they came from or were drawn from the life of everyday life experience of men as well as women. So, for example, you might see the parable of the mending of the garment, an everyday image from an average sort of female vocation of the time, coupled with a parable of, of making the wine, an everyday image from the average male working day. So Jesus spoke about women's life experiences in, a, in an affirming way. And then in his teaching, he uses feminine as well as male imagery to show us what God is like. So one of the most famous chapters in the Bible is Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. Um, you've probably heard of the par parable of the prodigal son, right? The son who kind of leaves the home and goes out to, you know, takes as much money as he can, wastes it all, spends it on wild living, and then is destitute. And the father, when he sees the son returning, goes running towards him. So Jesus is telling this parable to say, God is like a wonderful father who runs out to meet the son who is shamed and disgraced and rejected him. That's what God is like. And at the beginning of Luke 15, there's another parable that talks about a shepherd. And the shepherd has 100 sheep. And one of them gets lost. And actually, he's a terrible shepherd because he leaves 99 to go after the one. But Jesus is saying, God is a shepherd like that who so loves that lost one that he will go after the one. And in between those two parables, God is like a running father running towards his son. God is like a shepherd who goes after the one. And in between those two parables, God is like a woman who's lost her most valuable, precious coin in her house. And she gets down on her hands and knees and sweeps the floor, searching desperately for that coin. God is like that woman. And you and I are that coin that's how much he loves us. He's prepared to shame himself, 
to get down on his hands and knees in the dirt in order to find you, to find me. God is like a shepherd. God is like a father. God is like a woman. At the time when it would be disgraceful, astonishing, amazing to even speak to a woman, this is how Jesus taught. But more important than all of that, more important than what Jesus said, we see how Jesus centers women in the most important historical events surrounding his life. Now, this is really important to grasp because unlike actually any other worldview or philosophy or even kind of religious system, the Christian faith uniquely hangs or stands or falls on the historicity of the central events around Jesus. Christian faith is not primarily a set of philosophical propositions. It's not even really kind of moral teaching, a path to enlightenment. And it's not even a sort of aesthetic kind of experiential kind of spiritual um, a set of experiences. Because at its heart is the idea that God, who's behind the universe, who brought this cosmos into existence, entered his own creation in flesh and blood, in space, time and history, and died for our sins, and was risen from the dead. So that when we say we're forgiven, that's actually embodied and true and real and tangible. It happens in history, right? So the Christian faith, the truth of it, stands or falls on this sense of whether it's historical, whether it happened. And this is how Jesus Christ positions women in the central historical facts of the Christian faith. Number one, the idea of God taking flesh and coming and dwelling among us. It's called the incarnation, right? God becomes a human being. The primary witness to the incarnation is a teenage girl called Mary. A man called Joseph secondarily witnesses to that because he knows he didn't sleep with Mary and he then has that vision of the angel who tells him it's a virgin birth, don't worry. Right? So the incarnation of God is primarily and first and foremost testified to, witnessed by a woman. Second most important aspect of the life and ministry of Jesus is his crucifixion. His death at the hands of the Romans in about AD 33 under Pontius Pilate, and then all the details of the crucifixion accounts contained in the four Gospels. And we have extremely detailed physical descriptions of what happened, you know, the spear going in and the blood and water separating, the crown of thorns, the things Jesus said, the sort of wine-soaked sponge he had a drink from, you know, details, right? And all four gospel accounts tell us that the primary witnesses to those details are a group of women. The gospels mention one male disciple, all the other male disciples had deserted Jesus, one male disciple called John who stands at a distance. But other than him, the details of the crucifixion are witnessed by women. The third central fact of the Christian faith 
the resurrection, the empty tomb, the triumph of the Son of God over death. Christus victor, Christ victorious over sin and darkness and death, the hope of the world, everlasting life, embodied in Jesus, Jesus making that known to us, demonstrated in the empty tomb. Who is first at the empty tomb? A group of women. Now, when you think that a woman's word in a court of law in the ancient world didn't have anywhere near the value of that of a man, it is unconscionable that if you were making this stuff, that you would stuff up, that you would center women in your narrative in the way the Gospels do. So actually, this is seen as good evidence for these accounts being true because you would never in a million years put women in these positions. Yet here we find women as the primary witnesses to the incarnation, the atonement, and the resurrection. It was to a woman that Jesus spoke the famous words. Martha, actually, who's kind of redeemed from having said, get Mary back in the kitchen. Martha, in John's Gospel, chapter 11, her brother has died. And she's grieving, and she's saying, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. This terrible thing wouldn't have happened if you had been here. And Jesus says to Martha, again, they're on their own. There's no male witness to this conversation. Jesus makes one of the most outstanding theological statements of the New Testament. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though he die." Women play these amazing roles. Dorothy L. Sayers put it like this. She said, perhaps it is no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man, and there never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them and never treated them as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them or urged them to be feminine or jeered them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend. He took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. So perhaps it is no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. I want to suggest to you that in our cultural moment, the person of Jesus is extraordinarily good news. The church may fail. Institutional religion may fail. Institutional Christianity may become toxic. It may be patriarchal. It may be dominating. It may be all of these things. But I want to ask you the question, when you look at Jesus, what do you see? When you look at Jesus, what do you see? And when you see what you see, 
you see it because of the testimony of women. You know the historic facts of the Christian faith because Jesus thought women were worthy of being witnesses. Now, we want the men to be included as well, right? (laughs) But this message is really important for men in this room too because you are dignified by seeing women as Jesus saw women. You have mothers, sisters, aunts, daughters, nieces, partners, perhaps. And it really matters. Jesus thought it mattered enough to pay a cost, to be rejected and scorned and seen as a scoundrel who sat and ate with sinners for for the way that he conducted himself. Yes, God came in human history as a man and redeemed the world in the person of Jesus Christ. But he was born through a woman. It's a woman's seed, says Genesis 3, that will crush the serpent's head. This extraordinary grace for women who experience brokenness, who've experienced the pain and tragedy and disaster of this life. And there is extraordinary affirmation and hope for what it means to be a woman who follows Jesus Christ. No sort of tiny little myopic sphere mapped out for you, but an expansive vision of being a co-image bearer with men in this world of the image of God. And all sorts of possibility of what we might be called to in this world. We will be disappointed by the church and by organized Christianity. One of my dear friends and brilliant theologian, Dr. Elaine Storkey, once said that we're going to be disappointed and we shouldn't be surprised to be disappointed sometimes by the church because the church recruits from the human race, right? Including all of us in this room, we're all going to fail to meet the mark But I want to suggest to you this morning that if you look at Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you will not be disappointed by him. And neither will any woman you know in this generation. It's a a hope we need to hold out, out with confidence again. Because if you look to Jesus, you will find that women are welcomed Whoever we are, whatever state our lives might be in, including great brokenness and perhaps sin, women are welcomed and taught and spoken of as equally human by Jesus. Women are honoured as providers. Women are given the opportunity to be witnesses to the primary facts of the Christian story, the incarnation, atonement and resurrection. And women in the early church, we haven't had time to think about that, played significant roles in the biblical literature, teaching, prophesying, witnessing, providing, and leading. You may be disappointed by past experiences of church, but if you look at Jesus, he will never disappoint you. Amen. Can I invite you to stand? We're going to pray. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.